All right, there we go. Uh, first of all, before we jump into the scripture today, I wanted to uh, just say thank you. If you've grabbed one of the bulletins, you'll see in there, it's a proposal for sabbatical. And if you were at our last members meeting, uh, Scott uh, talked about a sabbatical that I'm going to be going on. So if you haven't heard about this, uh, you can take a look at that sheet. And maybe you've never been a part of a church that uh, sends their pastor on a sabbatical, or maybe you've been part of a church that does that, but you've never understood why they go on a sabbatical. And so we wanted to just make it very clear. And I personally, I feel very blessed to be a part of a church that uh, encourages this. And, and so I appreciate that. And so for the next four Sundays, uh, I will be uh, out of pocket. It doesn't mean I'm going to be gone. This is not a vacation. Okay? I want to make that very clear. And if there is something that you, that you need, uh, feel free to, to send me a message. I may not reply to it as quick as I normally do. But Scott will definitely be available over the next month, and so you can contact him. But again, I wanted to say thank you, and I also wanted to encourage you to to be in prayer uh, for me during this time. I covet your prayers. Uh, The sabbatical is not about a vacation. It's also not, I'm not doing this because I feel burned out, okay? I want to make that clear, too. This is not a time, it is definitely a time to rest up and, and kind of recover from the last five years and the energy that it took to get here, but... More importantly, and this is where I need your prayers, this is an opportunity for me to just really evaluate where we are as a church and seek God's wisdom for vision moving forward. You think about it, we have more resources today than we've ever had before as a church. I mean, for the first time, we have a a place that we can come, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. And instead of spending hours and hours setting up and tearing down, we have that energy and that, uh, that manpower to be able to go and make an impact for the gospel in other areas. And so I want to I be in prayer that God would give us wisdom in the direction that he wants us to go. And so please uh, be in prayer. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, bottom of my family's heart, we want to say thank you for, for allowing this to happen and uh, be encouraged. I, uh, as, I, as I've looked at or talked to other pastors, uh, they, they've talked about how a sabbatical can not just be a blessing for the pastor, but for the whole church. And so I pray that that would be the case with this. And so thank you. All right, let's jump into Luke chapter 8. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. If you've got one of our Bibles, it is on page 7, I'm sorry, 958, 958. And if you don't own a Bible or if you've got an old Bible and you need a new one, please take one of ours home with you. This is our gift to you. And as you are turning there, let me just say that sometimes, and you're going to see this today, sometimes Jesus says things that are just baffling. And you, you read them and you question, what in the world is he saying there? I mean, that, sometimes you, you, you hear Jesus say something, you're like, that just doesn't seem like it's even in your character to say that. And, you, and you're left kind of scratching your head and you feel like a monkey trying to figure out a math problem. And this is what I found, though, is that when you run across passages in Scripture that are difficult to understand, those are the particular passages that you should focus. Don't have the mentality that, okay, I'm just going to skip over that because there's no way I can understand that. I'll just ask about that when I get to heaven, okay? Instead of having that mentality, we should have the mentality when we come across a difficult passage, say, okay, I need to focus in on this. I need to wrestle with this. And you're not going to understand everything at the end of the day, but... That's an opportunity, because this is what I found, is when you stumble across a difficult passage, often what it reveals is that you have a misunderstanding about God or yourself or how God has set up the universe. 
And so it's worth your effort to wrestle with it, to study what's going on. Because this is, what, this is the truth. None of us approach the Bible with a perfectly objective and pure heart. We live in a broken world. We are broken people. And so we approach the Bible very biased. And often we approach the Bible through the lens of the culture that we live in. So it's very easy for us to see things in the Bible that just simply are not true. And so how vital is it for us to wrestle with those things that are difficult? And how vital is it for in those moments when we see something difficult for us to pray and ask that God would help us to see not what we want to see, not what the culture wants us to see, but ultimately what he intended to communicate, the truth that he intended to communicate in that passage. And so today's passage, Jesus is going to say something that may seem baffling to you. And in, in fact, I want to actually start there today because I want you to read, and look at verse 10 is where I'm going, chapter 8, verse 10. And I want, to, I want you to wrestle with this verse in particular because I feel like if you understand this verse, it's going to unlock the rest of the passage that we're looking at today. And I'm actually going to start in verse 9, give you a little context of what's going on here. Jesus has just shared a confusing parable, at least it's confusing, it's a parable of the soils, or the, the sower, you might know it as. And the disciples are confused by it. So verse 9, pick up there with me. And when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know. Underline that word, that phrase, given to know, it's going to be really important. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables so that seeing, they may not see, and hearing, they may not understand. Now, you read that, and it may cause you to wonder, what in the world is Jesus saying there? I mean, I thought that the parables were given to us to illustrate a point, to make them more clear. But Jesus here is saying the exact opposite, isn't he? He's saying, look, I'm telling the parables so that they would hear, but not really hear, that they would see, but not really understand. I thought God was a God of order, not a God of chaos. What's going on here? Why would he not want us to understand? Now, and to, just to add a little fuel to the fire, I want you to turn over to Mark chapter 4. So go left in your Bible to Mark chapter 4. This is the parallel passage of, of that same story. This is Mark's version of it. And we're going to pick up in verse uh, 10. Mark chapter 4, verse 10. And w what we see is Luke actually gives an, an abbreviated version of the same story. Mark and both Matthew have a longer version of it. And this is what Mark says, verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, listen to this, lest they should turn and be forgiven. What is going on there, right? I mean, Jesus, I thought you wanted everybody to be forgiven. I mean, why would you not want them to understand and be forgiven? That doesn't seem fair. I hope I've got your attention. We've got to wrestle with this one. 
This is not an easy text for us to grasp. And so let's, let's pray, and then we're going to walk through this passage together. Father, I pray that you would please help us see not what we want to see, but what you intended for us to see in this passage, the truth. I pray that you would protect me from, from speaking falsely about this. I pray that you would humble our hearts to have open hearts and open minds that maybe we've got some misconceptions about who you are and who we are. And I would pray that you would, through your spirit, set us straight so that we would honor you and glorify you and obey you more. Transform us by your spirit through this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the context of chapter 8. Remember, at the very end of chapter 7, Jesus has just forgiven this woman who has shown just a a crazy amount of public affection. She's washing his feet with her hair and weeping over him. And he forgives her sins, and then the beginning of chapter 8 serves as a transition. Luke reminds us here of the purpose of Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 1. Soon afterward... He went on through the cities and the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' purpose. That's his mission, to proclaim the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. And, this is interesting, also some of the women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And so the group that has been following Jesus continues to grow. And in fact, and this is not normal in the culture, women now are part of his entourage. Verse 4, and when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable. And so this is a reminder, first of all, that Jesus is not all that impressed with the crowd. In fact, often what we're going to see is this pattern in Luke where when this big crowd starts to gather, he starts saying really crazy stuff to weed out the crowd. And so he starts talking in a parable, and this is what he says. Verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and and with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, listen to this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does Jesus mean there? What is he implying there? Because, of course, I mean, Jesus looks around and he, he sees everybody's got physical ears. All right, so what, was he, he, what is he saying here? Is he talking about, okay, maybe there's some people in the crowd that, yeah, they have physical ears, but they're deaf and they can't really? No, he's not saying that at all. This is what he's implying. He says, okay, I understand that everybody can hear things. They can hear uh, words coming into their ears, but not everybody has spiritual ears to hear. Everybody's got physical ears, but not everyone has spiritual ears. And as we walk through the rest of this passage, what you're going to see is that the heart of the passage is all about hearing the word. Pick up in verse 9 and 10. This is the passage that we're going to wrestle with, right? Okay, this sets it up. 
Again, and when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And so the parables that Jesus taught were not simply meant to illuminate, which I believe they were, okay? I do believe that was part of the reason that he spoke in parables, because he wanted to illuminate a truth. But they were also meant for another reason, to obscure, to hide the meaning. In other words, the parables were a tool by which Jesus could say something where some people would understand, but other people would not, could not understand. I remember Cameron and I, when we were in college, this is before, right before we got married, we worked for a, a day camp, okay? And so uh, during the summer, they, they had this day camp, and, and this group of kids that we had, two of them were these Russian girls that had just been adopted recently. And they were, they were so adorable. They, they had this Russian accent, broken English. I can remember Natasha was one of the girl to, girls, and Cameron would, would tickle her, and she'd be like, don't ticklish me, don't ticklish me. They were adorable. But at the same time, they were often frustrating because they would begin to talk in Russian to each other so that nobody else could understand them. And, and you were wondering, like, what, what are you doing? Are you scheming? Are you trying to do something behind our back? What's going on here? And I imagine that's kind of what some of the people felt like when they listened to Jesus' parables. Now, often these Russian girls, they were just arguing back and forth with one another because they could talk quicker in Russian, so it was easier for them to argue that way. But I, I imagine, see, the, the parables of Jesus, they're more than cute little stories that have a spiritual meaning, Okay. Uh, they're more like riddles. They're like puzzles that you have to wrestle with and try to figure out and understand. See, a, a parable is like an encrypted code that needs a key to unlock it. And this is what, uh, you got to get this, the key is in God's hand and only in God's hand. The key is not found in human wisdom. He grants the key to some and not to others. To those who he grants to know the secrets of the kingdom, the parables are illuminating. They're fascinating. But to those that God does not grant to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, those same parables are, are like confusing poetry that you might try to listen to. Parables are, are kind of like the sun that will melt an ice cream cone, but at the same time will harden clay. Parables are like light that cockroaches will scatter from, and yet at the same time, a moth will be attracted to. And if you think about this, this is, this is true of the gospel. This truth is, is true when you proclaim the gospel. Paul wrote, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When the gospel is being proclaimed or when a parable of Jesus is being told, it's, it's not like an IQ test that determines whether or not somebody is smart enough to understand what's going on and figure it out. No, it's more like a test to determine whether or not God has opened their eyes and given them to know the secrets of the kingdom. And so when, when people don't believe, when they reject the gospel, it, it's not that they're dumb. It's, it's not that they've had some kind of brain injury or brain 
damage. It's that they've been morally damaged, which is true of all of us. They hate the light and will continue to hate the light until God changes their cockroach kind of eyes into moth kind of eyes that love the light. So if you sit here today and you love the light, if, you, if the gospel is significant in your heart today, why did you believe? It wasn't because of anything in you. You brought nothing to the table. You believed solely because God opened the eyes of your heart and caused you to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. It's because of grace that you have faith. Not because of anything you've done. Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of faith. I'll give you another passage. Romans 12, 3. God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And so even the faith that we have in God is a gift from God. On the flip side, if, if you've got friends who you've been sharing the gospel with your entire life, maybe it's your own kids, and they just continue to reject it, well, it's possible that they are fulfilling the words of the prophecy in Isaiah that Jesus refers to. Jesus refers to Isaiah chapter 6 here in verse 10. When he says, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand, that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. And if you want to turn back to Isaiah chapter 6, you can in the Old Testament. I'm going to talk about it for a minute here because it's significant because it really unlocks why Jesus spoke in parables. And Isaiah, Isaiah 6, very popular passage in the Old Testament. If you've heard sermons preached on it, uh, you remember that Isaiah in chapter 6 gets a vision of the throne room of God, and it's magnificent. Uh, he sees God sitting on the throne, and the robe, the train of his robe fills the temple. And as God speaks, the earth quakes, and, and smoke fills the air. There's beautiful uh, heavenly creatures crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts whom the whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah, of course, in this moment does what any of us would do, I think, if you were standing in the presence of God, his knees probably just buckled and he falls on his face and he says, woe is me for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, I am a sinner. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so he looks at God and he recognizes the holiness of God and he recognizes his own sinfulness, his own depravity, and he just says, woe is me. And then it's interesting what happens next in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, these heavenly beings, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And he says, behold, this has touched your lips. That represented a purification process. And he says, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. So God commissions Isaiah here, and Isaiah, moved by the mercy of God, moved by God's grace, that he would atone for his sin, that, that the sin has been just wiped away, and the guilt has been 
taken away. That burden is gone. And Isaiah's like, I'll just send me anywhere, God. I'll, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll go. And usually if you've heard this passage preached, that's where it stops, right there. And it's a call to missions. And they don't go to the next verse. But we've got to go to the next verse because that's what Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 8. So look at, look at the next verse. It explains what the mission is that Isaiah is being sent to do. God says, go and say to this people, so go and say to these Israelites, and these Israelites, they, they've been rebellious for a long time now. He says, go and say to these people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Sound familiar, right? That's what Jesus said in Luke 8. But then listen to 10. He says to Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And so you can imagine, Isaiah wasn't as excited about going out on this mission now that he knows what the mission is. In fact, his next question to God is like, how long? How long will this go on? How long do I have to prophesy him? And take this message to our people. See, Isaiah's mission was that of judgment. And in God's answer to Isaiah, when he asks how long, he says that, look, there will be a remnant. There will be some that who, a few, in fact, a tenth of our people will remain faithful. But it's going to feel like you're burning down this great big oak tree and only the stump is left. So going back to Luke chapter 8, when Jesus refers to Isaiah's prophecy as he's describing why he shares these parables? What is he saying? He's saying that the parables are used as a tool for God's judgment. The parables will soften some hearts, but they will also harden some hearts. As a preacher, and I think this should be humbling for all of us, that the hard reality is that when we proclaim the gospel... This is what's happening. We're softening some hearts. God is using us to soften some hearts, but also bring judgment and harden some hearts. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. He said, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And so that's our role as evangelists. We are to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For this is what he says in verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And then Paul said, who is sufficient for these things. He, he recognizes the weight that is there, the, the responsibility we have to proclaim the gospel and that part of our role is to serve as a tool for God's judgment. Who is sufficient for these things? When you share the gospel and God's word doesn't seem to be effective, doesn't seem to be healing or softening or, or saving, it's not that his word is being ineffective in that moment. In that moment, God may be using the proclamation of the gospel to do his work of judgment. 
I know that's not an easy thing to take, especially as a pastor. But in light of this, I think we need to take a look at back at Luke chapter 8 and the meaning of this particular parable that Jesus is sharing here. Uh, it's the parable of the, the sower, the seeds, the, the soil. Now, it's not hard to interpret. Jesus gives us the interpretation right here. But let's look at verse 11. So they've asked him what the parable means, and he says, now this is the parable. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear hear the word, receive it with joy, but... These have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil... They are those who hear the word, hold fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. And so, the four different soils represent four different types of heart that receive and respond to the word of God in four different ways. And so these chairs, let's pretend these chairs are the four different types of soils, the four different types of the people that he's talking about. And so you've got the first chair, the first soil here. And this soil, he, the, the seed gets thrown on it, and it's, it's just, it's hard. It's a path. It's been trampled on. And, and so the seed just becomes bird food. And Jesus says, well, that represents Satan who comes up and, and takes the seeds to the point where they cannot believe and they will not be, be saved. And so this is the person that just utterly rejects the gospel. The the gospel is just foolish. Church is boring. Why would I ever want to go there? There is nothing there for me. This is just a waste of time to be here. And so, I mean, they're just, they're lost. Now, the second two soils, okay, and so you've got the the rocky soil and the thorny soil. They're similar in the fact that they, they hear the word and initially they receive it but they do not produce any fruit. And I I would argue that these two chairs, these two soils were never truly believers, that they never truly had saving faith because there's, there's two requirements that they do not possess that is required of saving faith. And so remember, just as a reminder, so the, the rocky soil represents the, the seed that is, they're there for a little while. They receive it with joy even. But then when things get hard, when things get challenging, when, when they recognize that, okay, trusting in Jesus is not all uh, like rainbows and, and, and fun, they, they slide away and they, they say, all right, this is not for me. Now, this person, this is the, the thorny soil, and they receive the word, but the, the cares of this life, the pleasures of this life, the things, and this is us, this is America right here. This is probably, our, out of all of these challenges, this is us, because, and if you've been to Scotland, or if you've been to Africa, or if you've been to any other, really any other country, 
especially a third world country, you recognize how much we have here and how bigger houses are and how much we eat here. And this is what gets in our way of hearing the word. But Jesus says, these people, they, they don't last either and their fruit never matures. And so there's two requirements of saving faith that these two chairs, these two soils don't possess. The first one is that saving faith perseveres. Colossians 1, 22 and 23. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So Christ has saved you. Okay, he's justified you. He's made you, he's made it so that your sin is wiped away. Then he says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, that does not mean that when you become a Christian, when you, when you trust in him that you're never going to sin, or that you're not going to go see through seasons of life where you're just rebellious, and, and you go through seasons of life where there's just doubt. But this is what it does mean, is if you are truly saved, if you have saving faith, that God will not let you go, and he will draw you back because you have been sealed with his Holy Spirit. Now, the, the second requirement of saving faith that these two soils do not possess is they ultimately don't produce fruit. Fruit is a requirement, the Bible says, of someone who has been saved. If, you, if there's no fruit in your life, you need to question whether or not you truly have trusted in Christ. Okay, so what do I mean by fruit? What does the Bible mean when it, when it talks about fruit? Uh, the Bible mentions several different meanings. Okay, one, it can be, and if you're taking notes, they're all C's, and I didn't do this on purpose. It was just way too easy, and we're Baptists, so I figured might as well do it. So uh, five C's of different types of fruit that we see in the Bible, okay? So the first one is character. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are fruit that we see as a result of saving faith. Beyond that, there's conduct, your good works. Colossians 1.10 talks about your good works are, are, are when they're done with the right motives. They're, they're uh, fruit. Uh, Paul talks about converts. He talks about the, uh, those that he witnessed convert. Uh, that, that's fruit. Um, also, Hebrews 13.15 talks about when you confess Jesus as Lord and you praise him with your lips, that's a type of fruit. And then finally, Paul also talks about in Romans 15, 28, that uh, our contributions, when you give to the mission of Christ, that, that's fruit. Where your money lies, that's also where your heart is. And so those are all fruit. And so what kind of fruit is Jesus talking about here? I think he's talking about all of it. I think he's talking about all of it. Saving faith always produces fruit. Jesus said this in John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anything does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Let me say that again. Showing, my, showing yourself to be my disciples. And so 
Fruit is a requirement of saving faith. Uh, rocky soil, thorny soil. These guys may look a whole lot like a Christian. They may act like a believer. They may talk like a believer. They may come to church like a believer. But ultimately, because they, their lives don't produce fruit and they don't persevere, I think you could describe them like John does in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out from us in order that it might be made manifest that they all are not truly of us. All right, let's talk about the fourth soil. This is the, the good soil. This is where we all want to be, right? This is the soil that when it receives, when it's the heart that receives God's word, and because uh, it perseveres, because it has patience, it produces fruit. That's where we want to be, the fourth soil. Now, I want you to understand, though, Jesus is not saying that some people just are naturally born as bad soil, while other people are just naturally born with with good soil. He doesn't say that here in the text at all. And if you read the rest of Scripture, the whole of Scripture makes it clear that we are all over here. Naturally, this is where we all are. We're, we're all fallen. We're, we're all sinful. R Romans 1, no one is good. Not one. Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? He said, I, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. No one has a heart that is naturally fertile soil that produces fruit. For us to produce fruit, we need Jesus to give us a new heart. We need Jesus to give us spiritual ears and spiritual eyes to be receptive to his word. Jesus put it this way. And John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Just like a baby cannot will itself to be born, you cannot will yourself to be reborn. You are reborn only by the grace of God when he grants you to know the secrets of the kingdom. Those who have ears, let them hear. So in this passage, Jesus wants his disciples to do, I'm going to give you a, really three applications that I see very plainly in the text and one implication. Now, we're going to run through these real quickly, but if you're taking notes, this is what I want you to walk out of here with. And so first of all, Jesus wants his disciples, he wants you and me to become more discerning, that, they, that, that, that you would be more aware of your own heart and, and recognize, okay, what kind of soil do I have in my heart? right now. And I, th I think if we're honest, all of us, even if this is you, if you've trusted in Christ and you know that you're a believer and, and, and the light is, is glorious to you and it, there is evidence of fruit in your heart, you recognize that there is still in your soil some, some thorns and some rocks. And fortunately, God is the gardener who is pulling those out gradually. And so it's good for you to be more self-aware and to, to really evaluate your own heart, be discerning. In other words, take care how you hear the word. 
Are you responding to it in obedience? Is your life filled with fruit? Are you bearing fruit? Secondly, I think he shares this passage to warn us of the dangers in the world that threaten to prevent us from having fruitful lives. Uh, I think in America, like we talked before, uh, the primary concern probably in Jesus' mind for you and I is this, uh, this third chair that uh, we, we, it is so easy for us to get distracted by things of this world, to invest our time and our energy and our money in things that do not have an eternal impact and to be distracted by them. And, and ultimately, and he mentions this in the text, that what does that cause? It causes anxiety. Because the more stuff you have, the more anxious you become because you're worried about losing your stuff. And so Jesus is reminding them that, look, that stuff is not ultimately what, what matters. And so it's a warning of the dangers that would threaten us to have fruitful lives. Um, know the schemes of Satan. Know that, that, that there are trials in life. And I think his hope in this is you le- read the rest of, of scriptures that, that uh, like Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 6, that we would be armed we would know the schemes of Satan. We'd be armed against them, that, that when trials come, that we would actually rejoice knowing that, that there is hope in the promises of God and that the pleasures of life would not be something that we run after, but we would be content with what God has given us, being satisfied fully by, by Christ. And then also, I believe that Jesus is he's wanting to prepare us and his, his disciples in that day of the reality that when you proclaim the gospel, not everybody is going to be receptive to it. In fact, many people will not be receptive to it and be prepared for that. These are good lessons. I think they're plain here in the text. There's one more implication that I see as I've really wrestled with this text, uh, this, text this week. So if God is the one who opens up our spiritual, spiritual ears and if he is the one that opens up our spiritual eyes and, and causes us to know the, the secrets of the, the kingdom of God, like he, he says in this passage, how vital is it for us to be on our knees in prayer? Way too often do I try to do it on my own and say, I, I can, if I work really hard, I can be faithful. And if, I, if I strive with all I've got, I can just white-knuckle it and get over that sin. But the reality is that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. It is all his grace. It doesn't mean that we don't have a role in it, but I think one of our, our primary role is to be on our knees in prayer. How important, if this is true, the people that we love, that we're sharing the gospel with, how important is it for us to be on our knees for them that God would move, because ultimately all we're doing is spreading seed. We don't know people's hearts. We don't know where it's going to land or if it's going to be effective or not, but ultimately God is the one. And so we should be on our knees constantly pleading with him that he would change their heart because God is in the business of changing hearts. And I praise him for that because I would not be here today. You would not be here today if that was not the case. I was just talking to 
uh, Jeremy Burke last night, and he was talking about his testimony. He says, it is a miracle of God that I'm saved. He said, on, on a, it was a Saturday night. I was going out drinking on a Sunday morning. I just happened to go to church, and I was on my knees repenting that next day. It made no sense. And if I went around this room, and, I, and, as I, and I know most of your testimonies, and as I look out there, you have the same story. It may look a little bit different for you, but many of you have the same story. It makes absolutely no sense because God in his mercy, it is all him. We bring nothing to the table. And so if you're here today, you should celebrate that God has made you know that he had opened up your eyes to know the beauty of the gospel. And if maybe today, for the first time, you recognize that your heart has not been there, that your heart has actually been one of these soils and and for the first time, God is opening up your heart to understand and truly see the significance of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And because of that, when you trust in him fully, when you rely on him fully, he wipes them away and forgives them fully. If that's you, for the first time, God is opening up your ears and your eyes spiritually. Man, we want to celebrate with you. That is something to celebrate. And so I would encourage you as we move into a time of communion, meet me in the back. And uh, during this time, if you're new with us, we, we celebrate communion every single week because every single week we need to be reminded of the grace and the mercy God has given us on the cross. And so we would encourage you, if you've trusted in Christ, if you've got a relationship with him, if, if there is fruit in your life and you've persevered and God has, has opened up your eyes to see the significance of the gospel, we would encourage you to join us in the celebration. But if that's not you, and you recognize today that you need a Savior, and you need forgiveness, I'll be in the back. I would love to pray with you. If there's anything else that you need prayer for, I'll be in the back. I would love to pray for, with you during this time. If you've got questions, I know this is one of those sermons that may, may cause a whole lot of questions. Don't leave today until you get a chance to, to talk to me uh, or somebody you trust, and, and we can continue to wrestle with this together. If you've got questions about baptism or salvation or church membership, don't leave here today until you get those answered. Uh, these boxes up here are for our regular attenders, our members. Uh, this opportunity to give back uh, for the mission. This is fruit, uh, proof and evidence that, that God has been working in your heart. Um, but more than anything, I hope that during this time you would use it to just evaluate your own heart and ask the question, what kind of soil am I working with? What, what rocks, what thorns do I need to get rid of in my own heart? And so we're going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to worship together. Uh, after everybody's gone through the line, we're going to stand together and we'll worship. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. We do not deserve it. Thank you for opening up eyes and hearts, softening hearts, and I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that here in Shepherdsville, and that you would use us to help soften hearts, that you would embolden us to spread the seed of your word everywhere, so that by your grace and your, me your mercy, people would respond. I pray that that we would see a day that every nook and cranny has the seeds of the gospel spread throughout the world and especially in, in, in our community. That you would use us, 
for that mission, that we would be excited about that, that there would, we would wake up and that, that would wake us up in the morning wanting to go and to share and to spread that good news that you are the one who offers forgiveness of sins. We can't do this apart from your spirit moving in our hearts to embolden us to do that. So we plead with you now that your spirit would move for your glory, not hearts. In Jesus' name.